So Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. One of my guilty pleasures is Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that, that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I, I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends folks who are basically in my sphere at first to interview and have some conversations because I've always been curious about you know where people come from what their interests are and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about maybe I know nothing about so I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests and um, please feel free to comment send questions um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. So my guest today is Erin Catherine Baytog, is a writer, disability rights activist, memoir consultant, and writing workshop facilitator. She uses her deep compassion and understanding of chronic illness to supportively guide creatives affected by chronic illness through the barriers blocking their artistic processes. Diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, she recognizes each illness journey as unique, valid, and poignant. These journeys have the capacity to significantly alter in a positive way our understanding of the human condition. Her own illness journey began when she started having double vision at age 19. For the next 16 years, she dealt with a myriad of new and worsening symptoms, misdiagnoses, and misprescribed treatments, hospitalizations, and countless appointments and tests. Traversing a rocky mountain path of uncertainty, fear, and faith, she walked on, sometimes in complete dark of what was happening to her body and mind. In 2015, finally a proper diagnosis and a ray of light on the path forward. She wishes to use her own truck as an escort along the contributors' paths, shining light on the veritable climb up their own Rocky Mountain to a peak of truth, turmoil, vulnerability, triumph, and above all, hope. Hi, Felicia Podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan, and my guest today is Erin Bayog. Baytog. I don't know why I said that. So I had it like in my head correct, and then I am going to screwed it up because everybody's names I mess up. I'm terrible, terrible name rememberer because in my head I always switch letters and do things. So say your name. Yeah, uh, it's Erin Catherine Baytog. There you go. It's okay. I've gotten Bartog, <laughs> Botag. It's, you're not alone. Um, do you mind if I just ask, like, the origin of it? Yeah, it's Polish. Okay. Originally, it was Bartok. Um, and then when my family came over, um, they changed it to Baytog for some reason, which is strange. It's the same number of um, letters. And isn't Bartok a composer? 
Yes. Yep. So that would have been a, f- a famous last name to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instead, it's like basically where, I mean, there are a few. Go to Poland. Yes. Maybe there might be more. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because like uh, my last name, Brian, is is weird because it's spelt with a Y, but it it's not really like <laughs> it was probably O something. And then it probably was an I originally. And then like, you know, who knows what happens when you come through customs. They just are like... They just write shit down. Exactly. Right? Yeah. They they absolutely do for whatever reason. <laughs> I I don't know why bar talk was too difficult. But. <laughs> Maybe it was like too many O's or something. <laughs> oh, um, so just in the way of how you introduce yourself to folks, um, I hate the what you, what do you do question because I think it's very limiting. So like as you introduce yourself to people, what do you tell them about yourself? So that's an interesting question. Usually I start with, I was in sales, corporate sales for 20 years. Um, and then MS came and knock in and my life changed. Um, and so now I'm in this place of understanding I think myself. at a deeper level. Mm. And um, really, I've always been a storyteller and a writer. Um, I taught myself how to write when I was probably three. Um, oh, that's cool. Just because I had all these stories in my head and I needed a way to get them out. Um, and I couldn't wait until kindergarten, <laughs> I guess. Um, and so I think, and I studied psychology and creative writing um, in college. And then I didn't have a Pulitzer for some reason coming out of school. What? Yeah, I know. It's shocking still. Um, did, what, how did you the experience of... of- of that in college because in some ways for me like I studied English and psychology as well and I found the English program so soul crushing so for me I am um, individualized major so oh, I created my own major um interdisciplinary approaches to writing and mental health I mean what does that mean um but really it was just studying creative writing mm-hmm. so I wrote poetry and plays and like memoir, you know, short essays, things like that. Um, and I double minored in poli sci and physics because I was really interested in all of those things. I've been doing sales for a company since I was 16, um, like in the corporate side, but I business bored me to tears. So mm. I wanted to use my dad's money in a way that was going to be fulfilling. Um, and so they are where I went, uh, UConn, they had, they had individualized programs. So I was able to do that. Um, and just, there was reading certainly, but it wasn't, um, it was not like an English path, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. And so in your bio, I read a little intro for you where, you know, it has the history of your misdiagnosis. Do you do you want to share a little bit of that story? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's sort of a big part of how, how I came into pursuing a new career path um, was my journey of misdiagnosis. Um, so I started having symptoms of MS when I was, that's multiple sclerosis, I think people would know, but just in mm-hmm. case. Um, I started having symptoms when I was 19. I started with double vision, and then I would have these really intense, severe foot cramps in my left foot where it would look deformed, really, until mm-hmm. it sort of subsided. And um, throughout my 20s, I would have um, varying symptoms come up. Um, so 
focus issues, um, depression, anxiety, um, insomnia. I would have, uh, I lost feeling in my left leg. All of this was attributed to um, just different things like, oh, probably you have ADD or, um, you know, you have, you have a chemical imbalance of depression and anxiety um, and, oh, it's a pinched nerve. That's why you lost feeling in your leg. Um, and, oh, you're young, you know, being young equals healthy. So um, it was a little frustrating. Uh, I, I did not feel heard. Um, I knew something was wrong and uh, I just, yeah, I just didn't feel heard. Um, and then in my late 20s, so this is actually a pretty rare symptom of MS. Um, it can happen. It happened to me. Um, but I had a bout of essentially euphoria, hypomania, and then it manifested into um, psychosis. So I had a psychotic break. And it really, instead of doing an MRI um, and sort of ruling out anything physical, they just prescribed me medication based on some family history. Um, and the medications... One, I, I don't have a chemical imbalance. I, my brother does, and he is on medication, and it helps him immensely, and it balances him, and he lives, you know, a normal life, um, quote-unquote normal. Um, but for me, not having a chemical imbalance, it was really... I had very severe side effects. Um, the first antipsychotic that they prescribed, I had a dystonic reaction. So every muscle in my body was spasming for over nine hours and my I was suffocating. My, my lungs were collapsing. Um, it was a big mess, <laughs> um, near death really. And then after that, they prescribed another medication, um, but they prescribed an acute dose long-term. And so um, it got to the point where my treating physicians were thinking that I might have something else like cancer or something like that because I had lost so much weight and I was anemic and I um, had a lot of other issues. And then I just stopped taking any medication really at all. Um, but again, not feeling heard. Um, I kept telling psychiatrists and, you know, primary care physicians um, that I really felt like something else was happening. Yeah. Um, and there was just... There really was not uh, listening, I mean, or asking questions or inquiring as um, if I didn't know my own body mm -hmm. as well as they did. Um, so I've, I found a disconnect there between the patient and physician relationship. And that always stuck with me. And then even into diagnosis, like proper diagnosis. Um, so May of 2015, I woke up um, one morning <laughs> And uh, I couldn't feel both of my legs. I, I was felt like I was paralyzed. I couldn't move them. Um, I had to go to the hospital. And that was when they finally were like, oh, we should do an MRI. And, uh, and that's when I was diagnosed properly. Um, but when I was diagnosed and I had the actual discussion with the di diagnosing neurologist, uh, she, I had asked her questions around uh, how would this affect my diet? How would this affect my cognitive ability? What about mobility? Um, the only other person I had known with MS was my great aunt, and she was in a wheelchair, um, really in her 40s. And uh, I also was asking about do I have to take pills because of my previous experience with pills? Yeah. Even with something as serious as MS, I didn't. I didn't want to have to face side effects. 
and the questions were dismissed really um you know oh you know you eat well you're fine um and you're you're you might have memory loss similar to you know as you age and you know you'll probably need a cane in your 60s versus your 80s um and you know pills yeah we'll probably start you off with a pill twice a day and with that encounter, I really started to understand that I, I was trying to communicate something and I didn't know at that time how to be an advocate for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neurologist didn't ask why I was asking those questions. And that was really important. Um, the, the why, I mean, so we talked about the taking pills um, so I had some PTSD <laughs> really around taking pills. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had an eating disorder, pretty severe one in my adolescence. Um, and so any change in my diet is always affecting. And, you know, my, my jobs at the time I was in corporate sales. So I did pharmaceutical sales and financial sales and technical sales. And so there were very complex, uh, complex services and products and information that I had to retain and, and, uh, really teach the, the people that I was interacting with. So if I had a shift in my cognitive ability, then it was going to affect my livelihood Yeah, and mobility. I mean, I was always very active. I was a snowboarder and always like running and hiking. And, um, you know, I played football when I was, um, a young girl, I was the first in my, my town to play with the boys. Um, so that was a big part of my identity. Um, and all of those things changed very dramatically, very quickly. Um, and after that, I, this always sat with me and when it became very obviously untenable for me to continue in the career that I had had, I needed to find something else. And that's where I found narrative medicine, which is what I'm studying now. Um, And it really is about helping physicians to understand the relationship that they have with patients and how to cultivate and develop that in a real way um, that takes into account the history of patients, what actually is bringing them into the office. You know, maybe it is a pain, but there's some, you know, there could be other things that are, that are you know, contributing factors to why they're, they're in front of them. And it's a difficult situation, I think, for healthcare providers right now, because the system itself is, is really broken. (laughs) So, um, you know, the hope is that narrative medicine, um, will, I'll be able to bring sort of some space for healthcare providers, for them to be able to understand their own humanity and where that really applies in how they're providing care absolutely yeah it's it's um it's it's so necessary and i can see having you know met you and had a few conversations with you now about you know the thoughtfulness that you bring to that experience and and i don't i don't um doubt for a second that even if you didn't have ms that you would still have that thoughtfulness. But I think because you've had this experience with the healthcare system and you have this diagnosis that just deepens and rich in, you know, deepens and makes more rich the experience that you're going to bring to narrative medicine. So we need you, Erin. <laughs> a little bit about um, ailments. Yeah. So um, ailment 
was born. Sorry, right, called it ailments. It's no, ailment. no, that's okay. Yeah. Um, so I, because of MS, um, so I am at school, but it's um, it's a part-time online program through um, Columbia. So I'm feeling, I feel very blessed that I'm able to um, be a part of of the narrative medicine program there. Um, even just being remote, move, you know, moving or being in New York would be. Un, again, untenable or just not not possible um, with the uh, issues that MS brings. But that's a lot to negotiate. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it would be exciting, but it would be a lot to negotiate. I could see <laughs> it that. Would. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my fiance Caroline and I are pretty pretty rooted in Massachusetts. Um, but and I, I am very lucky to be able to be a part of this program, and they've been very accommodating with understanding um, MS and allowing me to take class and take a semester off and things like that. So um, in my off semester um, over this past summer, I was thinking about what it is that I I was going to do with my time. (laughs) Um, Because just relaxing wouldn't have been enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. (laughs) I'll have to think about that one. (laughs) This is said from someone who has a very similar mindset, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, sitting in the sun um, is nice. I I love being outside, and it's it's definitely um, a part of my just wellness really. Um, but yeah, relaxing is, is tough. (laughs) Um, so I, I've been, I had been thinking about, um, I, again, I mean, as, as we talked about, I'm a writer. And so I was thinking about, um, and I've been surrounded by creatives really my whole life. So, uh, in understanding how creatives interact with, with, difficulty really um or challenges it, it can be fueling and Absolutely. it can be healing yeah um so I was thinking about how I would be able to do that I I was with an organization called Rev Up uh, which is really voting um it's it's making sure that disability rights is is in the forefront and on the ballot um with candidates who are running for office and so I'd um, been thinking about other ways to connect with people who struggle um, or are affected really by chronic um, mental and physical illness. Mm-hmm. And the way that I wanted to do that was through a creative process. And it just sort of, I think as it happens sometimes, it's like a flash. Um, I saw a word ailment and that made me think um, about that word and what that means and how I identify with it and how others might. And um, not just people who have chronic or physical uh, mental illnesses, um, but anyone affected, healthcare providers, mm-hmm. um, you know, caretakers, hospice workers, social workers, uh, really anyone, I think, could could potentially be in that category. Um, so I wanted to have it be broad. And um, I, had, I had done some creative writing workshops where I would run just a, a workshop. It was called Soul Narrative. And we just, um, <laughs> I literally would go around and put up flyers and like hold them in libraries. Um, and it would really just be creative prompts um, mm-hmm. and people to write, 
you know, for maybe 15 minutes and then people would read out loud. So I was thinking, okay, uh, I want there to be a creative prompt that people respond to. And it can be prose, essay, poetry, you know, drawing, photography, painting, um, you know, really any medium that's speaking to the, to the person. So the first, uh, the inaugural issue is coming out. I'm finished, I finished editing. And so now I'm putting it all together. Um, that's so exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. And, and it's very extremely humbling. Um, we had over 300 submissions, um, over a three month period and the only, continent that wasn't represented was Antarctica. So I thought that was really cool. I'm kind of sad though, cause I want to go to Antarctica. So I would have loved to, <laughs> <laughs> to have somebody from there. But, um, yeah, it was, it's, it's incredible. Um, Were you surprised at the kind of breadth and depth of the submissions? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was surprised. Um, it was, like I said, humbling. I mean, the, the caretakers, the ways that they would describe or that they interpreted um, what their loved one was going through or even just what patients were going through and things like that. Um, when I would hear from healthcare providers, physicians, and they would write something creative or they would submit a photo, like a, a photo or a painting um, about, you know, interactions with patients it reminded me of really why I was pursuing narrative medicine mm -hmm. because the it's the humanity of it all, um, right. you know, which I think gets lost. And the the vast vast majority of people who get into healthcare are not doing it for the money or prestige or anything like that. They're doing it because they feel a calling, yeah, um, and they really want to help people and to better their lives, um, other things I think get in the way. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's been incredible. I had the experience recently with a, a neurosurgeon, um, who was, God, you know, just, just the most, and I can swear on this just so you know, so <laughs> I'm going to like drop, drop, drop the F bomb here, no problem. but he was just the most arrogant fuck ever. And he was just, I had a second meeting with him. He was like a super snappy dresser. He came very good. Everybody that I stopped along the way that I had appointments with, they'd be like, Oh, well, he's great. Um, Oh, you're so lucky to have him. And he was just awful in my last meeting. I brought a friend after having a conversation with you about like bringing someone savvy with you to right. an appointment yes. to write, write notes and ask questions. Yes, that's my mom. <laughs> and I brought my friend who yeah. had had multiple appointments and actually has a, um, a chronic heart issue. And she actually had a very talented cardiac surgeon tell her that he wouldn't take her case and that he would let her die on the table. Wow. So she had had that experience of having an arrogant, but this surgeon was just so awful. And he kept trying to tell me how he was. And I just took that as like arrogance and, and like trying to flip the script a little bit. I'm sure he was trying to reassure me but what it came off as is arrogance. And then he kind of threw me under the bus. And as 
we're this is my second meeting with him. We so, sort of have a plan to move forward. We actually have a hospital. We're talking about scheduling the date for a, the surgery that I think is going to solve my two and a half year old hair issue that I've been dealing with. And as we're walking out the door, he goes, "Oh, but, oh, but your insurance. I'm not going to take you as you're. You're going to see my colleague." Oh my gosh! And, and I was like. Oh. Like so the, deflating the f- and also the in, like in the fury I felt yeah. in that moment like I really wanted to rip his pocket square off his <laughs> jacket and shove it in his mouth like and if I could get my leg up high enough I would have kicked him but it's just like at, at what point to, <laughs> to like do you forget that like this is nerve wracking for me. Like this is a long process for me. This is my second appointment to come and see you. Like there's no consideration given to like, I had to plan time off from work and who's going to drive and am I me and where am I going to park and how long is, you know, how bad is it going to be to get to the place in the hospital that I have to go? And if I had to be in a wheelchair, who's going to push me? And, and like, you know, how many more tests do you want me to have done? And what test is going to be the thing that tells you the thing that you need to know about what you're going to do for me? And, and is it really the thing that I want to do? And it's like a hundred, it's like a, it's like a flow chart of a bazillion different questions that can then lead to something. And at the end, you're just hoping it's the thing, it's the answer. And there kind of never is. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and that that goes for all conditions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, I mean, we were just discussing, I, I had an appointment yesterday with my neurologist and it's sort of like, this is MS. I, it's sort of, you know, he's, he's very good. Um, and you know, really, um, much beyond much better than the first neurologist that I, that I had. Um, and he, he is, very knowledgeable and relatively aggressive um, and proactive, but at the same time, there's only so much that they that they can do. Really, I think he feels like his hands are tied a little bit, and it's sort of like, well, this is what it is, and for me, it's not good enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I I understand, and so I think that that's where I I try and. And how do you make the decision for yourself about how much you push because you think, hmm, that doesn't seem like the right answer? Or, like, are you questioning yourself like, well, maybe this what it, this is what it is and I just don't like the answer. Like, how do you make that determination? That seems very difficult to me. Yeah, it is. It is difficult. I think um, we were talking earlier about being an advocate for ourselves Mm -hmm. or having someone else be an advocate. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that I think that in some ways with the technology and WebMD and things like that, people are able to be more knowledgeable, um, Mm -hmm. whether that knowledge is actually true or not. (laughs) I mean, there's at least an effort on people's part to try and understand more than just taking and, you know, the quote unquote authorities word for it. Um, You know, I think that it, I guess it, it really comes down to trusting yourself. Um, yep. And for me, that it took, a, it took a long time. And I think in some ways still is in, in trusting my body, in trusting my decision making around my own health um, and what's 
you know, what's the most important. I, um, I recently, for some reason, this is sort of how the universe works maybe, but, um, I have been over the past couple of years, um, I've met multiple women, almost 10 women, um, in my sort of surrounding area who all have MS. And, um, so I started a support group for us because it's difficult for everyone to get into Boston. We live outside the city. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's, we've all been to other support groups, but maybe not people in the same life situations that we are. Yeah. And so it was really great to be able to get together and talk with, with other people, women who are in similar situations, life situations and how that affects, you know, partners and children and career and things like that. Um, so I think support is to get back to your original question. I think that support is helpful for me to be able to discern what is right um, and to trust myself because, you know, I'll, uh, with my fiance, I'll talk with her about, well, you know, maybe I'm going to try this. You know, I haven't, I haven't done acupuncture yet. Let's, yeah, let's Mm -hmm. give that a shot. And, um, you know, and and having support and someone say, yeah, I think that's a good idea or ask Mm -hmm. questions like, why do you think that'll be helpful? It helps me to feel more grounded in my decision. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you know, there's, there's like 12 different questions I have. Um, so, Same. <laughs> um, my, um, my most recent back. Um, so I also have had like gastric bypass and I have other, um, I am a care, um, also, did a stories by the stage around her mom's uh, Alzheimer diagnosis. And we talked a lot about like how you process grief and um, not even recognizing that as a caregiver of someone who has dementia or Alzheimer's, you are dealing with grief. Um, but I think sometimes in this process for ourselves, when we're in the midst of either a pain cycle or are trying to figure out like next steps or how to deal with a symptom or resolve some sort of issue within the medical system. There's so much doubt around ourselves sometimes because you're like, am I imagining this thing? Am I just pushing through this thing? Should I should I go on Web WebMD? Um, and and then like usually no. <laughs> should you read all of the reports that come out <laughs> about right. the test that you? Um, no, you shouldn't read all the reports because <laughs> I have been reading the reports and they've been making me crazy. Um, and then I have like a trillion questions around that, but. There's a lot of, uh, for me at least, there's a sense of betrayal sometimes. And sometimes the betrayal is almost like my own body is betraying me. Do you ever, do you ever get, get that sense? Yeah, yes, um, I do. That's one of the, um, one of the challenging, one of the many, right, uh, challenging things about chronic illness um, and for myself, MS, is, um, well, to speak to your comment about grief, Um, I think that there is a real process of grief when you have a chronic illness, Mm. um, or if you're a caretaker, um, you know, for me there, I definitely grieved 
um, my physical abilities as well as my ability to be in a, in the corporate world. Um, that was a big part of my identity being, you know, a corporate, uh, you know, salesperson or whatever. Um, and sort of this high pressure, high, you know, velocity type of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to just be very physical, um, you know, even just running, or jumping. I can't jump anymore even. <laughs> so it's just very strange um, to think about who you were. Um, but it also was very freeing in, a, in an interesting way because I did feel um, we had talked about that, you know, story um, is extremely important to me um, and, and definitely a huge part of my identity narrative, um, I think has always been, you know, knocking on my soul like hello you need to put me in your life <laughs> um and ms gave me a way to do that in, in 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 sort of a backwards approach um and so i definitely went through a grieving period and still do at times i mean yeah. grief of any kind whether it's a loss of uh, a loved one um, or a pet or, um, you know, a loss of yourself in some ways. Yeah. Um, it's, it comes in waves. And, Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that recognizing the things that sort of blossom from these weeds of chronic illness yeah. um, is really interesting. And that's what I try to focus on. But it's hard when I wake up from like a snowboarding dream. I'm like, oh, darn it. <laughs> but yeah. it's... um you know, but then there are other, there are other things. I mean, I wouldn't meet the people that have, that I've met like you, um, you know, yeah. I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't certainly have a website or be learning graphic design or, you know, yeah. be in school. Yeah. I mean, I never imagined that would, would happen again for me. So it's, it's good for me to focus on those things and to see, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting that the best fertilizer is manure. <laughs> so it's kind of like, shit, yeah, you know, absolutely. the most beautiful flowers in the world grow from shit. So, absolutely. you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, that's sort of, I guess, you know, rising from the before. ashes, right? right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're all phoenixes. So I, uh, I was having, um, like a mani pedi the other day and I was looking out the window with all these people like having their Sunday walks and um, I just found myself like so jealous just to get up and like put the sneakers on and go and have your stroll like um, and for me like this has only been the last two and a half years I've been dealing with this but there um, it feels like forever so and it probably you know regardless of maybe it's been a week or 10 years it still feels that same that same poignancy I guess and you know I definitely felt sad about it and I didn't I didn't necessarily think that I wouldn't n get back to it in some way but it's perhaps just going to be different yeah I think um I mean one it's it sucks <laughs> I mean I I've certainly experienced that um you know I'll see people running or, you yeah. know, kind of like chasing after kids. And I'm just like, oh, okay. I mean, that is not going to be me in that same sense. Yep. But to your point, things change and transition. I mean, 
person myself. I, I do, I'm very interested in physics and quantum physics and all of that and energy and whatnot. And um, thinking about particles and subparticles and sort of what everything is made of. And it's all energy and it all shifts and changes. Absolutely, and, yeah. you know, I mean, water can become, ice can become, you know, steam. Um, so it's the same thing. It yeah, just has, yeah. has like shifted. the energy of your soul doesn't is not confined by what your physical body can do. Exactly, it's, just like, it's basically it's a nice meat suit, but the rest of the stuff is is the part that's the. I'm going to say more important. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it's, we are mind, body, and soul and there is a connection, but the way that, I mean, not to get to be morbid, but, um, when you see someone who's passed, they're gone. I mean, their essence, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in, it's just, they're not there. Yeah. And so, you know, their, their soul is left. This is what I believe their soul is left and, and moved on and they've, you know, their, their energy and that essence of them has, has sort of transformed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that doesn't mean that they don't exist in, in my mind. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a different form. And I think that that is sort of the way that I've come to think about myself is that, those parts of myself that I feel that I've lost, I haven't lost. They're just, they've just transformed. It's just yeah, a different form, yeah. you know? Um, but it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, I, I was an avid hiker. Um, my fiance and I still go on hikes with my rollator or walking sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just different. It's, it's not those like mountain climbs or, yeah. you know, it's a stroll in the woods, <laughs> but it's still good to be outside and to be in the woods and to be surrounded by nature. I'm literally a tree hugger, um, to her embarrassment, <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I just, I can't be without, without nature and the woods and grass and all of that. Um, so I think that while I'm not going to get to the top of a mountain, just being there is, is transformative for me. So it's, it's understandable though. The, yeah. It's, it's sad. Tell me about the um, first time that you decided to use the cane. Well, the first time I decided to use the cane was the first day that I met my fiance. Which I loved. I love this story. That's why I asked you to call it. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> oh, I see. I see what you did there. Um, so I was going to meet some friends at the Women's March in 2017. Um, Don just been elected, and I felt a very visceral urge to... Mm-hmm march and be heard and be present and still do very much so maybe even more so uh at this point but i knew um that i was not going to be able to walk all day without some assistance and the only cane that i had was from a halloween costume like a joker costume (laughs) so it was plastic with like a big joker head on the front and uh, or on the like top of the cane so that wouldn't do so i went and I got a cane and I met my friend and we walked um, from Seaport to sort of the downtown area and met up with her roommate who um, was is now my fiance. Um, but we walked all over. Um, I held on to my friend most of the day because even with the cane, it was very, very difficult um, and very painful. Uh, and 
we the the day was dying down and my friend took a phone call and um my fiance and I leaned up sort of against this wall so I could kind of take a rest and we started talking and um yeah it just it was it was great that was really um there was no hiding <laughs> I mean it was very yeah. very obvious that I uh had MS not that I was really ever hiding it from anyone um but you know you're it wasn't a setup that I knew my, my friend knew differently, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I never would have put, put myself in such a vulnerable position with someone I was interested in right away. Mm -hmm. Um, just for, I don't know, you know, vanity or pride's sake or, um, but I'm very thankful that I did because I just was able to know for sure, like, no, she's, she's, she knows she's pursuing and, and interested because of who I am and the MS is something I have. It's not who I am. So, right. uh, it was very humbling as well. Um, I've humble, humbling and humble are two words that I've, <laughs> that I've embodied, I think in, in the past yeah. like five years. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was great. And since then, you know, she, calls me a badass and all that with my with my cane. I have my fancy cane all set for the wedding. So <laughs> that was a perfect example of a shift too for you is sort of like the first okay, you know, fuck it. I'm just gonna go get the cane because I wanna do this thing that I really want to do and I'm gonna let go of vanity and perhaps some of that idea that I can do it without assistance or help or whatever. And not your fiance. And so opened up space in your mind, your life, your being, your essence, whoever, for that person to come in, you know? Yeah. And she seems like a gentle soul. I don't know her very well, but that's... Thank you. Yeah, she she definitely is. Yeah, she's a very gentle soul. She's, um, not to gush, but <laughs> I will. <laughs> um, she's, yeah, she's just very genuine. She is the most genuine, authentic person that I've, that I've met um, and am privileged and honored to have such a, a beautifully intimate relationship with um in the sense of really genuinely being and and allowing who we are to be mm. um and it's you see she's uh made you feel seen as well yes yeah definitely yeah i ho i hope um you know the reverse is true but uh yeah she she absolutely has yeah, and I've been very comfortable in in not to show emotion. I feel it very deeply, but showing it is a completely different story. Um, and so it's uh, yeah, it's it's a process. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I would I would always have before considered stoic stoicism one of my finer qualities, but you know, that, that just kicks you in the ass a lot of the time. And it's a, it's an idea. I think for me, at least I link to strength and then not realizing that the amount of energy it takes to hang on to that mantle is just energy. Potentially could be using elsewhere. I don't know, right. but it's tough to let go of. It's really tough to let go of. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the, in the jobs that I had before in the sales jobs, I, I definitely felt like I was two different people. Like I was the work me and, and then the, um, and so things kind of got lost in that, in that way, because, 
you know, I put on a suit and I go into professional mode and that is, there's no room for emotion there. Um, and for connection. And that always sat, uh, didn't sit right with me when I was talking with physicians because again, I mean, their, their whole job is relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. Even, even surgeons, they have relationships with the, the people that they're treating in terms of when the table, the person's body is speaking to that surgeon. Yeah. Um, you know, so there is a relationship that's built. It's just not, uh, they're, they're convers- verbal. Um, uh. So I, uh, I've definitely found that vulnerability is strength. Um, yeah. And I think there is a shift happening where that is the case. Um, I have a lot of younger cousins and they're very um, open and, and true to themselves and their feelings. And uh, even my nieces and nephews, they're, they're just, um, I can't believe that they have such insight at their ages. It's just, it's in language too. Like, yeah. yeah, language that I definitely wouldn't have necessarily even had at that age. Yeah, no, I, um, my one was 14 and I recently was, um, she wanted me to read, uh, um, just a paragraph of a home analysis of a person who had been in the Holocaust and her analysis and interpretation. I was just like, where, how, (laughs) how did you come up with this? That's so incredibly astute and insightful and, and phenomenally written. I was just like, I, I mean, blown away, but it's, you know, shame on me, I guess, for underestimating, um, you know, people who know themselves, I think. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so tough. I think generationally that's something that they have, um, skill set for. They're much better advocates for themselves. What I find or what I have seen, and that can be just my little closed sphere, but my stepdaughter's 13 and super intuitive, insightful, a lot of great language, very verbal, thoughtful, but in some ways really naive. So no sense of like how to question the input and the stimulus is coming in. So they're totally overwhelmed by TV and YouTube and TikTok and all this stuff, but there's sort of no discernment around truth and authenticness and like how to dis- determine those things sometimes. So I, I've, I think it comes in like a fire hose because it's almost like there's no filter sometimes. And um, that can be overwhelming to someone who's very intuitive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do see that, um, you know, with my nieces and nephews, because um, I think that just by nature, they're very intuitive and empathic. And um, the the way that life is now for the younger generation, I mean, I don't know that I would be able to handle it if I were that age. Um, yeah, I think that you're right. There is this fire hose um, and some of the information is good, but then some of the, um, the it, there doesn't seem to be space for kids right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when I was younger, I mean, it was, we were just in the woods riding our bikes and climbing trees Absolutely. and stuff like that. And like, yeah, we had TV, but we could only watch a certain amount every day. Right. And, 
you know, other than that, like you were outside, what are you doing? It's, you know, it doesn't matter that it was raining, like get outside. Right. <laughs> absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I think that, um, there, there are parents who, you know, and, and I don't, I don't have kids yet, so, um, I'm probably speaking out of turn, but I think there are parents that, that definitely understand and recognize, um, the need for that space. And um, they're trying to figure out ways to be able to allow their kids to have that um, without their kids feeling like they're not tuned into their own existence or their own experiences with their peers and things like that. So, yeah, it's... Uh, and experimentation, too, like getting to, like, make mistakes or do things wrong or, like... You know, I was mu very much a tinkerer, so I would take, like, toys apart and put them back together again. And, like, you know, I found my father's soldering iron and, like, I was soldering <laughs> things in the basement <laughs> yeah. I probably shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> and, like, you know, I was, like, digging clay and, like, you know, putting eels in buckets and seeing what happens and, like, just experimenting. Yeah. Like, experimenting. Yeah. Like, you know, mixing paint and I used to paint shoes and like, <laughs> my parents were always like, what are you doing in the basement? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah, but exactly. I was experimenting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that there are ways that, that kids experiment now. Um, I think in some, it's a little different maybe. Um, you know, I mean, for, for myself growing up, we were always outside. Um, we lived across the street from a pond, so we we're always either ice skating or mm -hmm. catching turtles or, you know, um, avoiding like a big snapper named Merlin. <laughs> um, we were always in the woods climbing trees. We, we rode our bikes all over the place. Um, I think if my mom knew where we actually were. That's the other thing. Kids, it's it's pretty difficult for kids to... Yeah. be other places that their parents don't yep. know <laughs> which is good in this day and age um right you know certainly we were we lived close to the red island border so we were always in in another state <laughs> um but yeah we 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 would make movies my dad was very like into technology so we had you know those giant video cameras that like sat on your shoulder and oh that's funny we would make movies and all of that and it's not that um, you know, my, my nieces and nephews are very creative. I mean, but everything goes on YouTube now, you know, yeah, it's like so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my niece does really well with like stop motion video, like videography and stuff. It's really cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different, but it always is. Again, it's that transition. Yeah. That change. Yeah. That transformation, you know, it's still childhood. It's just different. I know it's, it's tough. The, um, how do you allow, like, so when your personality and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm relating a lot to the, perhaps we have some similar personality traits, but I'm always like, go, 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 go. And when you have any kind of a health condition that permits that mo forward mobility or what you're thinking of as forward mobility, how do you allow yourself a pause or downtime or a nap or rest or whatever, you know, yeah. I find that really challenging. Yeah. I, I find that oftentimes my body tells me rather than my mind. Um, my mind is ready to continue 
and keep going and not stop. And my body is like, we're done. <laughs> like, that's it. Your leg, my, you know, my legs are done. I have to lay down uh, for the rest of the night, even if it's six o'clock in the evening. That's it. You know, it's almost like my body's on a timer sometimes. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. <laughs> um, I think Can that- Can you predict it at all? Sometimes, yeah. I, I definitely know when I'm pushing too far and when I'm going to need a recovery day or, you know, um, any of that. And um, we have a cat and he is my recovery buddy. He's Aww. just my buddy, my pal, but he he's there, you know. I mean, animals are intuitive anyway. Yeah. So uh, he knows, you know, um, when I'm not doing well. Like uh, he'll, he'll meow at the door if I shut it when I'm brushing my teeth, like in the bathroom. He's just meowing because he wants to see me to make sure I'm okay and things like that. And he, you know, he's me a little shadow when I'm, when, even when, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm doing fine, mm -hmm. relatively speaking. Um, but he knows when that's not, when there's an issue. Um, and he'll lay like on my legs and just purr and, you know, just do healing cat things. <laughs> we call him bipolar kitty though, because he definitely can be a little bit of a bitch, but <laughs> it happens. <laughs> um, I would say I try, um, you know, I think that the slowing down, um, there are some practices that I've been trying to put into, into my life to help me slow down. Um, I've been trying to wake up really before the sun rises, which is extremely difficult for me. One, because I have insomnia with the MS, but also because just naturally I'm nocturnal. I usually get my second wind and my creative juices going at like 10 at night. Um, but I'm trying to shift the way that I'm, that I'm living. Cause most people don't live at night. Um, so it's, uh, yeah. So I've been trying to get up before the sun and meditate, um, and do, and do Reiki mm -hmm. and, and then like, you know, visualization and affirmation, that type of thing. Um, but I got it tuned over them. It's been really helpful, uh, to be able to put those practices in place and just really spend some time and, um, just sort of open my some healing in and, some light and, um, you know, really think about and, and feel sort of healing and positivity. Mm, definitely. Yeah. But I have to force myself to do it. <laughs> I'm a total night owl. I, I definitely don't get my second wind until about nine o'clock at night. So, um, and I have such insomnia with, because I wake up in pain. So I just, you know, I break, I'm bracing for it. And Believe me, I love to sleep, but I am so, I so put off trying to get into bed because I'm just like, well, I'm just going to wake up. My most, and for me, I'm always like chasing the pain cycle. So it's like, how can I stave off the pain? And there's only so many things that actually work because supposedly I have something mechanical going on. And, and the more that I've talked to you, the more I've even realized that like, I wonder if I should get tested for MS because so many of the clusters of the symptoms I have relate to a lot of those things. And it's like, I was like, maybe I should get tested for Lyme disease. Maybe I should get tested for all these other things because everybody's like, oh, it's neuropathy, it's neuropathy, it's back related. And it's like, I... I understand what nerve pain feels like and I understand what numbness and weakness feels like, but then I have 
a pain pain that's different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who knows? Like, I'm not ruling any of those things out, but um, my most recent pain cycle was a couple weeks ago, and I just had a day that, like, I did not want to give up on what I wanted to do. And I chugged gabapentin and Tylenol like all day and I was literally sitting in a restaurant with a dear friend who I was so desperate to see in my favorite restaurant and I had like two glasses of wine and and I still like I knew it it was like building it was like the fire dragon it was like it was not going to go away and by the time I got home she dropped me off And I told her I was having trouble walking and she, you know, brought the car around for me and it was lovely and she dropped me off and I barely made it up my front steps. And by the time I got in, I was just like, could not find a comfortable position. And usually if I lay down on the floor on my stomach, I can be okay. And it was not helping. It was not working. Nothing was. And so I went into my bed and I just went, and like burst into tears. And I cried for a good solid five minutes, like that really ugly, big, racking cry. And the dog came in and my fiance came in and he's just like, what can I do? And I'm like, I need to go to the emergency room. I just can't. I can't deal with it anymore and it's nerve pain and it's shooting down my leg and I can't walk and it's too, it's just too much. And, you know, the ER and they give you a lot of questions and I love it when they ask you like, on a scale of one to 10, yeah, how is your pain? And I was like, 10. And usually before, like I was in the emergency room a few years ago and I had a ruptured peptic ulcer. And uh, they asked me, how was your pain scale? And I said, seven. (laughs) And then I almost passed out. And the nurse was like, I think your seven is a 10. And in my mind, I was thinking, seven, because 10, I'm saving, because it could almost be worse. Like, if I was passed out, it would be 10. And so then when I was saying 10, I looked over at my fiance, and he goes, if she's saying it's 10, it's 10. (laughs) Yeah, we... um. My mom had had been um, in the hospital for uh, for something that turned out to be minor, thank God. But she was, uh, they were asking her the same thing, and she said, "Oh, you know, maybe like like a six or an eight. And my sister looked at the at the the nurse and said, "Yeah, that's that's an Irish eight. That means she it's like twenty. <laughs> it's like, yeah." Yeah, I'm I'm constantly at a seven. That's just where my level out is, oh, and gosh. it's it's really interesting because, um, you know, people that that's like a go to the hospital type of a situation. But yeah, what am I gonna do? You know, I can't live in the hospital. So yeah, you just do what you can do. Um, yeah, that's frustrating though. That's a frustrating situation. I was in a similar situation this morning. Um, I was meeting a really good friend old friend of mine that we had worked together and I hadn't seen her in a couple of years really um and she's she's one of my favorite people and um we were meeting really early before work for her um but I try to get up you know earlier so I was like oh it'll be fine and I love driving um it was about an hour but then I hit traffic I thought I left early enough but I didn't um and I slept like shit last night. I mean, really just garbage sleep. Um, 
And so it was like four o'clock in the morning and I'm, I'm basically awake and I have been for like a couple hours and um, just laying there with like spasms and tingling and pain and like shooting, you know, electricity up my spine and all of that. And I'm just like, oh, there's no way I can do this. I was like, no, I haven't seen her in two years. And then I was like, no, I need to like try and sleep for like three hours at least or something. I don't know. And so I got my phone and I went to our messages to tell her like, Hey, I can't make it. And I saw like her last message was like, yay, I'm so excited. And I was like, Oh God. All right. No, I want, I'm going to go. And I went and you know, um, but it's hard cause it's like, those are the moments where you're just like, damn it. Like, why does it have to be like this? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there are other moments where it's, where it's okay. So yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's just, it's just an everyday, every day is different for everyone really, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's like, I don't know if when you went to the dentist or when I went to the dentist, I'll say there was like this treasure chest when I was a kid. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. you could like pick a treasure, you know, and mm-hmm. it was like, it was always like a surprise, like what you were going to get, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is sort of my experience with chronic illness. It's like it's like the treasure chest, but of symptoms or you know. of shitty prizes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Some of them not, some of them not, like I said, like ailment and being in the narrative medicine program, Yeah, and, you know, all of that. And, and being able to connect with people like right, you who, right, yes. who do have a, a level of understanding and, and really relation that, yeah. um, you know, others wouldn't necessarily understand. Yep. And this, for me, these two and a half years, too, have been the most creative, have been, in strange ways, the most productive. And um, I just, I was thinking about this just the other day, and I'm like, um, I have a a coaching practice as well, so I I do personal coaching with folks, and strangely enough, uh, one of the areas is health and wellness. And (laughs) (laughs) I was coaching a woman who uh, had came to me and while she we were coaching she got a a very serious uh, genetic diagnosis and so she's been dealing with that and trying to lose weight and be more healthy and we were talking about how she manages the shit out of things and I just thought you know even with all of the stuff that I've been going on with myself health wise I feel like I've been managing the shit out of it, (laughs) but I also feel broken (laughs) and like some days I feel like this marionette that has its like, you know, strings all crisscrossed and you never like, like, is this thing working or is that thing not working? Or like, (laughs) I found a new dentist who I love. She's amazing. However, she wants to replace six fillings. Oh, yeah. I have dental trauma history. I'm oh. petrified of dental things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they're all old fillings. They're all silver fillings. She wants to take them all out because amalgam is not great for you anyways. Um, <laughs> and I was like, could anything more get thrown? Like, is someone going to... like? <laughs> Um, one of the tests I had done, they found something on one of my kidneys that they're like, okay, well, we'll deal with that down the road. Probably not life-threatening, however, but it was enough that, like, I read the report and it said, like, an anomaly was found on your right kidney 
um, your renal tube or whatever, possibly a cyst, but, <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> like seriously, like, like all of these things are just life things, but it just is a, in its totality, I'm sure somebody else would be like, okay, like I'm done. Like, like where do I cash in the card? I'm tired of like, I'm tired of it. Do you ever get that? Like, I'm tired of it. Yeah, yeah. Usually for me, my breakdowns happen in the shower. <laughs> um, they usually start with um, sort of spiraling down in a um, just a pit of where our country is and where it's heading in the world. And then I just go off on this whole thing. And then I'm just swimming in the muck and, and trying to wade through the mire of, of the external things that are happening um in (laughs) in the state of the country um and then that leads into how am I going to do anything when I have a mess like how am I going to make an impact like what am I you know I I want to be in front of the White House or in front of the Senate being like you better freaking vote for witnesses like protesting and you know and then it's like oh yeah well flying is pretty challenging for me and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to step out of the shower right away or you know like uh, I actually have to be sitting down today you know like it just um it it's challenging it is I mean there's no getting around that. Um, and it's not just with like physical, um, you know, illnesses and things like that. I mean, it's, uh, my mom has a saying that no one gets through this life unscathed. And I mm-hmm. think that rings very true. Um, whether it's a mental health issue yep. or, um, you know, inequality or poverty or injustice Absolutely. or, um, you know, any, Oh, I've been acutely, acutely aware. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, acutely okay. aware of my privilege throughout all of this. Like, I'm a white woman with health insurance, be it crappy sometimes. I have voice to give to in some language because I worked in a healthcare adjacent field. I have family members. I have a spouse. Like, that's a whole lot of privilege right there. So I can't even imagine being a person of color or trans or, uh, you know, not having family support or not having a spouse who's supportive or not having language for this. I, I can't even, I, I just can't fathom. And I'm that, that, that builds a lot of gratitude. Yes. Yeah. I'm in a very similar position to you. Um, absolutely. My, my privilege is, is very much in the forefront of my mind. Um, you know, thinking about everything that you just said, having, you know, a very supportive, loving spouse, um, you know, family. I have family that are, they're all very close. I mean, we have Thursday dinners at my uncle's with like all my aunts and uncles and cousins stop by and stuff every Thursday. Um, so there's, there's very much that like grounding of support. Um, and the experiences that I've had, um, you know, I, I was in a very precarious situation financially, maybe about 10 years ago, I was getting divorced. I had lost my job. Um, and you know, I, I had to, um, foreclose on my house and go into bankruptcy, but at the same time I wasn't homeless and I had a support system that helped me essentially to get back on my feet, so to speak. 
Um, and you know, I did get a job and it was a very well paying job and it, you know, with health insurance and everything. And I, I actually had not, I, I really wasn't without health insurance, um, throughout that whole time. Just, I was part of some layoffs and so they provided you with health insurance for, you know, for a little while and whatnot. And so it was like, if, if I were in a different position, that would not be the case. And so I think that recognizing that is, is, is an important thing. Um, I think right now for me, what does that mean in terms of, um, you know, like structural inequality, structural racism and all of that. And where's my, um, where's my place in that? And really it might just be to learn and listen from those who are actually, who are truly affected. Absolutely. Um, how do you think that will inform uh, the narrative medicine program? Yeah, I think so. I actually will be taking some classes, um, and so that'll be helpful. Um, one of them is is narrative medicine and social justice, narrative medicine and ethics, um, and the sort of looking at and studying health humanities and recognizing um, the biases that people have around you know, people of color and the, the women med- and women in the medical field, certainly trans, um, LGBTQ people, um, you know, as, as someone, uh, who is, I identify as a lesbian, um, there, there were definitely points where, um, it was very obvious that, you know, say like gynecologist or something like that. It was, you know, um, the treatment was different, uh, in some ways, and so there are these implicit biases, right, where yeah. that people have that they don't understand or they don't realize. Um, we we so assume sometimes biases always come from a negative or a bad place, and sometimes I don't know. Like I might question that. I don't. I don't necessarily think it does always. Right. I yeah. I understand what you're saying. I think that um, with in in learning more about the healthcare system itself and, um, sort of medical education, um, the way that the education, medical education is, is structured and delivered. There are definitely, um, it, it, uh, perpetuates bias really. Um, so that, that is one of the things that with narrative medicine, I'm hoping to address is, um, for lack of a better term, like exposing the biases yeah. uh, to the actual practitioners so that they are aware. And even just awareness, I think, can be helpful. Um, you know, I'm, I, uh, I think that listening is really going to be important with narrative medicine and, um, and that practice and, and really trying to just, just be quiet <laughs> about, you know, I mean... There are, as a woman and, and a lesbian, there are, there are things that, um, that I'm affected by, but I don't, but I'm also a white, you know, upper middle-class upbringing person who was able to go to college and have a a job and all of that. So there, it's like everyone, I mean, it's all complex. (laughs) <laughs> very complex yeah. yeah we need each other we need we need the um we need to understand or at least hear the other parts of the stories and other people's experiences because whenever we try to say it's a one-size-fits-all kind of thing it doesn't ever work 
And even if you say like, well, all women fall into this category, it's like, whoa, like, I mean, medicine itself is so geared towards the male perspective drugs, which are a, a book, it has a terrible title, it's called Gut Bliss, but it was written by a female gastroenterologist. And it was the first time I'd ever heard this. And it like just kind of blew my mind because I was having a lot of gut issues. And it was all about how female anatomy just by design means that your gastroenter gastro system, your your gut is totally different than the male because it has to go around a lot more different internal organs. It's a lot more twists and turns and things. And so say you have slow digestion or constipation issues or other kinds of sensitivities, it it's because your gut goes it's longer. It's like physically longer and it has to go around a lot more things. And I was like, <laughs> like yeah. blew my mind. Yeah. Yes. Had you ever known, had you ever, did you know that? Like I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I guess maybe with my background with pharmaceuticals, um, which take that for whatever it is. Um, but I, I did have trainings and things like that in different disease states and, and anatomy and pharmacology and immunology um, and all of that. And so there's like a very basic knowledge there. Um, but even in having some background there and during those training times, it was very obvious that it was like, well, women are different. <laughs> and like, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and I did we know have more that fat about- in our bodies, which means that we absorb uh, drugs and anesthesia different. Yeah. And did you, did anybody ever say that to you? Like, I mean, I have to know that because my dog is a greyhound and he has a lower fat content and a higher pro muscle content than other types of dogs. So there's certain drugs they can't give. Can anyone say that about me because my body's different than someone else's body? Right. I, no, I, I've not had a healthcare provider say, well, you're a woman, so it's different. This is, this interaction is going to be different or, you know, the effect will be this versus if it was a man. Um, and I think that again is, is, goes back to the, the a structural bias, right. a structural issue where, um, you know, research needs to change the, the Absolutely. way that they do research has to change and before the thinking was well we can't you know do research like drugs or or anything like that on women because they bear children and so we can't interfere with their fertility and all of that um but at the same time then you have very severe reactions to medications that um, a woman takes versus a man and the researchers are like, we don't understand why this is happening. It's perfectly fine. And like 80% of the people that we're using for this study, yet the, you know, 4% of women have this reaction. That's weird. What an outlier. It's like, I mean... It's so. funny too because the, all the tests that I've had done, you know, the single question that always gets asked regardless you know b besides your name date and birthday or whatever is are you pregnant <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> so like that's the one that you can't that they always ask like why couldn't we also have another standard question like are you in pain today <laughs> or like, <laughs> or like yeah. you know like rather than how are you yeah. which is a question I absolutely hate 
because I know it's meant in a very like friendly, positive kind of way, but like, like the guy on the corner at the bank doesn't really want to know how I am. He's just greeting me. Like my healthcare provider perhaps really wants to know how I'm doing. So they might ask that in a different way. So put that on your list for now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that is one of the, one of the, the sort of considerations, um, around building that relationship between healthcare provider and patient is how, how do you keep the humanity and the connection and build the relationship in a real, in a real way that is going to be impactful for the patient's health? Um, and also be able to have that foundation of trust and there's sort of these extremes of like, I'm only going to ask you, you know, very short and pointed questions with no, you know, affect in my tone or anything and to basically act like a robot or there's, I'm your best friend now. Um, yes. and yeah. you know, We're really hey, familiar. I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm palling around with you. Um, so there's a middle ground and the vernacular and the wording are very important as well as the affect and how it's being said and presented Um, because you're building a relationship um, and the relationship does have to be based in trust, but it's also a professional relationship. Right. Um, So, yeah, so there are those boundaries. Um, And it's interesting because it's a professional relationship, yet the patient really does need to be vulnerable and expose things that, you know, maybe they wouldn't even tell their partner. Um, Absolutely. So it's a balance. Um, and I think that there there is a way. <laughs> there is a way yeah. between the two extremes. Again, with my privilege, I've had the opportunity to give feedback to different providers around how they said something to me or why they said something to me. And um, I had that opportunity when I went to physical therapy which absolutely hated and did not help me and actually made it worse. Um, and I think the very well-meaning physical therapists, you know, with their matching um, fleece jackets and workout gear and really fit bodies, and you'd walk in the door and you'd kind of be accosted with, hey, how you doing today? And like, I would watch people walk in, not just myself, into that building, like limping in pain and sort of with their heads down, like, okay, here we go. Got to gear up for this. I know it's supposed to help me. But nobody walked in that door, like upright and eye contact and bright and like, I'm ready for this. So to be, it was really, it was like being accosted with, how are you? And I said to my PT and the other PTs, and, you know, it would be after we'd been laughing a bit and they'd have me working and I'd say, I know you guys mean it in a way to be positive. I said, but you're not meeting people where they're at. Like if people come in low or upset or in pain and they're kind of accosted with how you doing in a really upbeat, positive, loud manner, like you're not meeting them where they are. And then they feel doubly challenged because you've kind of just slapped them in the face with how you doing. And, and have you ever gotten a positive response to that? Like, and they were kind of like, huh. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were like, wow. Okay. Well, we'll think about that. I don't know that it actually changed any minds, but it was enough that they were like, 
Wow. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying rings true um, for a lot of people. Even if you're just out getting coffee and someone's like, how are you doing? It's like, I'm fine. Like, oh, okay. Uh, I'm good. I mean, most people will, that's sort of a default. Right. Um, and in some instances, it's understandable. Um, but in... In a healthcare setting, that is one of the one of the things um, with healthcare providers, whether it's PT or you know physician or nurse or um, you know even social workers, um, hospice care, you know you name it. Um, I, I I like the phrase that you said, meeting people where they are. Um, I think that's important, and and sometimes doing that requires silence or just. Um, you know, be just sitting with somebody, um, you know, if somebody walks into PT and they're, you know, accosted, like you said, with how you doing, you know, um, and they've just, as you described before, I mean, you know, even getting there was a monumental challenge. Um, and they're exhausted before they even walk through the threshold of the office. Um, you know, maybe just they check in and, you say their name and you walk them down and you're just in silence and, or, you know, is there anything you want to talk about before we get started? Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you're here today. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Yeah. You know, um, even that is just, and, and they may open up. Um, yeah. They, they may have things they want to say or they may not. Yeah. Um, but that, that is one of the things that, um, again, I'm hoping with narrative medicine to be able to work with, um, people who interact with other people really, um, in vulnerable states and trying to understand when to speak and when to just be silent Mm -hmm. and even silencing really. I mean, even if you're just silent and the other person is silent, they're speaking. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I just laughed not because of what you were saying, but when I was in the emergency room, the, the ER physician was very good with I said or didn't say, and uh, confirmed a couple of things. Didn't say based on the way that, and like the way that my body was moving. And when you're in pain, there's certain like signals that show. Um, and I was like clutching a blanket for dear life and sort of like and shifting around. And um, at one point he just stopped and he, I, I think he said something and then he just was quiet was looking at me. And I was like, oh, are you waiting for me to respond to you? <laughs> Should I be saying something? And he was just like, he was thinking, but he was like, it was, he was smart enough to not say anything and wait. And, and, and I thought that's the first time I think I've experienced recently where there was just quiet, a little quiet. And he was just waiting for like, was I going to say more? Was there going to be a question? But he was just like allowing that pause. And in the emergency room, I'm sure that's like a rare, kind of a rare thing where they allow that pause. Yeah. Acute care. I mean, even just non-acute care, like a, like an actual, um, you know, uh, scheduled visit. Right. There's, there's a time crunch. So being somewhere where there's an acute care situation, being able to like take a breath. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's really powerful. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things we're talking about healthcare providers, um, I'm, I'm really excited to learn from the healthcare providers that hopefully I potentially work with, um, in the future because 
they have a lot of experience and a lot of understanding and uh, even in some of the exercises and and things that I've done in class and school and things like that um with with people who are in the healthcare field or physicians um they there's a lot that they feel they aren't able to say or express oh interesting um because they're not supposed to talk about themselves or... Yeah. I mean, I think burnout is a real is a real thing. It's a real issue, certainly in, in emergency room situations. But even, um, you know, psychiatrists or, I mean, anyone really in the healthcare field, um, I think burnout is, is a real issue because it's just... I mean, if you're someone who is receiving, really, you're... It, a healthcare provider, I think, is, is in a position... That, this is my understanding and I am, I am not a healthcare provider. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking just from sort of assumption. Um, but a healthcare provider receives, um, and they, they give based on that reception on based on what they're given. They, they express. Um, but there, there are healthcare providers. I mean, I, I read, um, like a, a piece by an intern. Um, it was, or a resident. It was really, um, experience in, uh, in the hospital. And there was a, uh, an elderly person who really was at the end of life and, and pretty much just not going to make it through the night. And so the treating physician, you know, told the resident to just be there and, and sit. And she did, she just sat with this man and held his hand and he died. And she wrote this really beautifully poignant, powerful piece about how she he died and they came in and within minutes the room was clear and cleaned and he was gone and and she was supposed to move on yeah (laughs) and it's like she's had this really incredibly profound and and moving human experience of sitting with a person who is whose life is ending and she has no time or space or or voice to process this at all. Yeah. And when she at the time that she wrote the essay, probably like five or ten years, um, it had been probably five or ten years uh, since that incident, and it wow. was the first time she had actually been able to express. So they carry a lot, I think, healthcare providers, um, you know, they're human too. Um, so I think it's, it's really for moving into a new career path is about bringing humanity back. You know, Justin brought sexy back. Let's bring humanity back. Absolutely. (laughs) Aaron's going to bring humanity back. (laughs) Right. That's awesome. Not the best dance moves, but you know. (laughs) Hey, you can make up your own dance moves at this point. There you go. Caroline and I dance in the kitchen all the time. (laughs) So what else is on the um, on the agenda for you in terms of, you know, in the next year as you move forward? So you've got the narrative medicine program. You've got your publication. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, well, I'm getting married. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. It's happening in May, so we're very much in the thick of it. Yeah. Um, which is fun and stressful and everything that everybody says it is. Um, Have you guys had fights about food yet? No. Thankfully, the food was probably the easiest. The food and the music have been really pretty, pretty easy. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been stressful. I'm, I find this stuff fun and exciting. And there are some things that she finds fun and exciting and other things, not so much. Um, 
Which is totally fair. I mean, coordinating how guests are going to get there from a hotel is not really the most exciting thing. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think we booked we we booked our honeymoon, so we're excited about that. <gasps> Where are you guys going to go? We're going to the Azores. Um, oh, yeah, Sao Miguel. Um, so that's where my family's from. So it'll be really oh, interesting. They are. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ireland, and, uh, Portugal, and Poland. Um, but in any event, yep. So that is happening. Um, and I actually, in the fall, I did a guest lecture at a local college um, at an, in a, a narrative psychology class. And um, the, uh, the dean of that college asked if I would be interested in designing and teaching a course. So I'm going to give a go at that as well. Um, and really kind of around health humanities and that type of thing. So we'll see where that goes. That's very much in the beginning beginning stages but potential um opportunity moving forward as well that's awesome yeah well I can't wait to see what you do next thank you and um anything just in the way of um final thoughts that you'd like to share or how people can find you in your writing and sure yeah um well I one really appreciate uh, you having me on it's been very fun it was my pleasure yeah um and people can go to ailment coin um, C-O-I-N, so ailmentcoin.org. And that's one, um, that's all one word. And there you can find anything about the publication and I'm putting up information around the contributors. You can look at my bio and I have a blog. Um, and you can also donate. So part of Ailment's sort of mission is to um, provide uh, a space for donations for um, chronic mental and, and physical illness um, organizations that help with research and, and support and resources and all of that uh, for those who are affected. So you can find all that there. And um, yeah, I just, I'm just very grateful. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. We can do another podcast and uh, talk about your book and because you and I have talked offline a little yes. bit about your book and <laughs> yes. um, that narrative and maybe post-wedding because yeah. we're having our wedding reception in May as well. So. Oh, fantastic. All right. We, we both have... Actuals uh, to I, attend. I sort of hate all the planning of it. I hate all the details. <laughs> they drive me crazy. And I think because of the medications I take and all the, you know, insomnia or whatever, I feel like details get away from me. And that's my anxiety. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. My fiance, I think that um, she likes to find the spaces where creativity can really um, flourish. Uh, the creative aspect, not like the commercialization mm -hmm. and the this is the expectation type of thing. Yep. And just where can we collaborate um, in a way that's going to bring a bring out our, uh, you know, our relationship and who we are as people. Um, so I'm very grateful for that for that side of it, because I think so I can funny. get caught up in the, well, this is tradition. And I guess that's what we do. And she's like, F the tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that's a good lovely. balance. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. My fiance, he's very creative. He just, um, he has a big family and so he wants to invite everyone we know. And so we ended up inviting everybody. <laughs> and so he has big wish lists, but, um, 
he just approaches things a little differently than me. And so then, you know, that intersection, which usually complements us, has been just, there's been some conflict around that because I'm like, who's going to manage all the details? And so actually I have a former coaching client who now does some wedding planning and she's, and I've tried to reach out to people that I know. So someone I know is doing our chocolate strawberries because she started her own side business, you know, called Treats uh, Treats by Tiffany. And she does these lovely chocolate dipped strawberries. And then someone I know who does floral arrangements, probably going to be doing that. And then, you know, the woman who's doing the wedding planning is the one that helped us find the hall because she just redid the hall. And so it's like, you know, like uh, I met, um, some poets that do this traveling poetry emporium and they have they come with manual typewriters and they do one-of-a-kind poetry so that's going to be at our our wedding and then that's awesome I met a really wonderful woman who does henna art and she's going to be at the wedding as well so very cool and then yeah. we have a popcorn cart because I'm obsessed with popcorn <laughs> yes. so I love it <laughs> I love it yeah we um we were trying to keep to people we knew or um like small smaller businesses um with with a lot of the vendors um so it's been great yeah we we finally were able to to get our cake baker who's a friend of caroline's um yeah and i'll I'll plug her confectionism she's phenomenal where is she um she's in hopedale mass okay yeah um and she always brings us like treats little cupcakes and stuff she's gluten-free like she yeah i mean she's her flavors are, she likes to experiment, which is fun. Um, yeah, and the, the photographer we know and just, yeah. yeah, I mean, just trying to keep it as small as we can, yeah. but also recognizing that we both have Irish families, so <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be that small. Yeah, and we're doing a buffet, and I was having, like, anxiety around, like, eh, I didn't want China, but I don't hate disposables. We um, have compostable disposable plates, cool. cups, and utensils. Yes. Everything is compostable. That's amazing. This, like, made my heart sing, because I was like, you know, like, Okay, like I did pre-order at Starbucks, but like I have my straw. Like, yeah, I'm like, I, I just was like, I can't, I can't do buffet and have these plates. And some, my wedding planner was like, they have compostable. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh my god, god. yeah, it yeah. must be ordered now. Right, understandable. Yeah, sustainability is is important um, for both of us. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to need a new car probably in the next year or two. And I'm definitely going electric. Like, fuck the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. I'm not giving them yeah, any more of yep, my money. Yep. Um, yeah. And I switched over. I, I do uh, have a reusable cups from Starbucks and all of that. But yeah, we try and we're, I'm really, we're both really, um, sustainability has always been very important uh, for my fiance. She was sort of president of the sustainability organization with her college and everything. And, um, she's, it's, it's very much in the forefront, I think of how we want to move forward with our lives just because that is another very real and, and very, um, imperative, uh, that we address is climate change. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything we can do. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the things that kicks my ass is I have a compost pile and I'm like, I can't get out there all the time. Cause sometimes the walk to the backyard is challenging. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, I still have my bucket. I'll still make somebody go out there. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Like it kills me to wash the coffee grounds down the oh, yeah. disposal yes. or whatever. I'm like, no, it must go in the com- and I built the compost bin. I built it. That's awesome. And um, so I'm like, you know, I'm an I'm a nut job though. Like I'll I'll like tear furniture apart. And so like that's the other thing. Like the physicality of things. Like I'm like somebody's got to build me like a, a special table that I can do all that shit at. Because <laughs> like if I can't walk downstairs to do it, then like it's got to come upstairs. Like right. yeah, yeah. And that is you know that's one of the things that um, I think. Accommodation is an interesting word. Um, I think that really it's more of um, just adaptability. Yeah, just making making life accessible for everyone. Yeah, you know. Um, I have a friend that has one arm, and um, it's amazing to me to go through the world sometimes with her. And um, uh, you know, she can't get in the car and carry a coffee. Like she has to pass it through the window and it's like no big deal. But certain door handles, like like if she's has something in her hand, she can't open them. Like she yeah. has to have like a, a door handle to handle. Mm-hmm. She can't have a knob. Yep. Yep. And um or like getting into a building or getting into a bathroom or you know, one of the things I wanted with my reception was I wanted accessibility. Because I have a mother who has mobility issues or I have older relatives or, you know, I might have somebody who has a, a baby or whatever. And it's like I want there to be accessibility in bathroom, in the hall, in the seating, in the entrance and exit. And um, that was one of the things that we looked for. And, and um, it's you know, it's important to me too, like comfort. So like, you know, everybody wants to wear high heels or, you know, in my mind, I was wearing heels at my wedding reception. Um, that may or may not happen. I still have them and they're adorable. However, like I was on line last night as I am most evenings <laughs> late into the night. Yeah. Some purchases are regrettable. Others are like <laughs> necessary, but I bought myself some really cute pair of sneakers because I thought you know what fuck it if I have to wear those I'll wear them but they have to be fucking cute so yeah I was I was a heel wearer usually oh um gosh. that was sort of the average um I had some very beautiful pairs um one pair I kept which is my favorite even though I'll never wear them again I just like looking at them they're like beautiful purple peacock like oh they sound gorgeous, gorgeous. yeah just like a sexy shoe (laughs) um i have a pair of four and a half inch um silver with like a clear flower on the top open toed they look adorable on Mm -hmm. i don't know that i'm gonna be able to wear them but yeah i'm still putting them on (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. for me i i knew for the wedding i would wear flats i'm doing two dresses um really out of necessity um just the the reception dress Uh, the ceremony dress has a train and everything um not to give too much away because i think you know caroline might listen to this yeah um but i am wearing a reception dress which is short and that way i can dance and Mm -hmm. not you know um not trip or fall or anything and i'm definitely wearing flats so um yeah i it's you adjust yeah um but yes accessibility is very important um absolutely and and I think that that is another thing that people who need things to be different in order for them to participate in the world, um, 
their 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 voice is important and Absolutely. their needs are important. Um and they they should be met. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, everyone's just trying to live in the world. So we shouldn't make it more difficult for people. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I know we just went on another tangent. We could we could go like probably another hour, but probably. you know, <laughs> I'm sure you have things you need to go do in your day. Well, thank you. This was a pleasure. This was High Felicia Podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan, and my guest was Aaron Baytog. Oh, look at me. I Got said it. it right. There you go. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Inside of a drop of water, you are everything. You are a complete biosphere of microorganisms and life force. You are understanding and movement. You are lost and found. Like that mysterious sock that emerges from the dryer without its mate. There is light and dark. There is aging and death. It's all the same. We are here and they are there. We encapsulate all these tiny moments along a long continuum. Who do you choose to be in this moment? A caring daughter, a parental caretaker, an older sister, an attentive friend, a supportive spouse, a present stepmother, a committed employee, or a broken vessel? You're an infinite number of decision trees that flow into one another. You are deliciously simple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and gourmet carrot ice cream. Your warrior soul comes from steadfast caprice genus and wild red hair from the salon. You are three stooges in cinema France. You're a great skin and bad backs. You're an ex-smoker and health and wellness coach. You are silly and serious. You use humor to cover up the mistakes. You know when to blame the farts on the dog. You are different variables all happening at the same time in Cascade. You are waves in the ocean. You change direction when you need to. You lap up into yourself and meet yourself. You are perfect balance and stumbling grace. You can retreat and pause anytime you like and still end up where you are. Your sanctuary is a library. You find safety on its warm leather couches. Pull your favorite book from its shelves and be lulled by the rhythm of raindrops on its window panes. This internal space lives in your present mind, always open and accessible. Your stillness allows action and movement. Even butterflies and birds take time to glide on their chosen air currents. You have an infinite number of books, memories, and choices to draw from. Past and future are all at once here. Your life is an Escher drawing, but not in a cruel or confusing way. Let's rethink that. Maybe your life is just an etch-o-sketch. Shake the toy and the scene resets. Nothing is written in sand that the ocean can't wash away. Their future is not yours. Your future hasn't even been lived yet. There is beautiful and elegant loops in your life. Like light and water, you bend and refract into yourself. Your beauty creates this beauty. Your pain creates this pain. The waves carry you forward. Your life is all connectedness and all knowing. You are a precious drop of water for a thirsty soul.